0: Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much indeed for tuning in as ever. Great to have you all with me, with us all together, whatever you're doing while you're listening. If it's okay with you, I'm going to reflect a bit on the Cameron lobbying story uh, with its wider implications and pose a question which I think is at the heart of explaining the Cameron affair which is, is England, at least, becoming closer to a one-party state? Uh, Conservatives elected four times in succession after 1979 and four times in succession after 2010 and currently favourites to win a fifth successive election. I think that explains the Cameron affair. Um, But there is a twist which I'm going to reflect on, a very big difference between now and the four successive conservative wins in 19 after 1979 so that's what I'll be doing if that's okay we come to some brilliant questions from all of you before that a uh, quick summary of the live show uh, last week the rock and roll politics streaming live from a room in my house from my boudoir oh yeah on that by the way an historic announcement to be repeated. I repeated it at the show. As things stand, virus permitting, the next live stream show on Wednesday, May the 12th, I think it's a Wednesday, it's definitely May the 12th, is going to be the last live stream show from my boudoir, from a room in my house. So, for those of you who haven't experienced this communal coming together you've got to get a ticket and they're on sale now at uh, king's place and they don't break the bank so hopefully see you all for that historic event because after that i hope to be out live although they also will be streamed because it's a global audience these days and some of you won't be able to fly in to watch live at king's place or wherever Uh, only because of the COVID restrictions, otherwise I know you would have all flown from Australia and New York and all the places uh, where people listen or tune in for the streaming live from my boudoir. So that's May the 12th, the last live show from a room in my house. There will be tears, there will be champagne and much more. Anyway, probably a variant will erupt and we'll all be in lockdown by then. On now to, oh, yeah, the other thing, uh, the prediction that night was interesting. I asked the audience, the global audience, to predict not what they wanted to happen but to predict what they thought would happen in the Hartlepool by-election coming up very shortly as part of that super Thursday of elections next month. And a majority of those tuning in that night predicted that the Conservatives would gain Hartlepool. Now on the basis of previous predictions that means Labour will win a landslide in Hartlepool and that prediction is the best news Keir Starmer has received since he became leader. Uh, it will comfort him if he's only just heard having been thrown out of a pub in Bath amongst other things on his campaign trail. But if that audience is right that will be a significant result. A Tory gain in Hartlepool governing parties don't usually make gains at this point in the parliamentary cycle Uh, so let's wait and see that's going to be a big day that super thursday we also that night reflected more on that drama to be played out on the thursday but that was the prediction anyway the cameron lobbying saga there are of course many elements to the story. But one that I think is particularly interesting is this. It's partly a consequence of England, at least, voting for one Conservative government after another. And also a consequence of Prime Ministers retiring relatively young. And in Cameron's case, with a limited set of political convictions to shape what he then does because think about it in the 60s and 70s power used to change hands fairly regularly at Westminster I'm not saying that's necessarily a good thing or a bad thing it just happened so the Tories were in power until 64 then Labour were in power until 1970 then the Tories were in power until 1974 and then Labour were in power uh, until 1979. So much so, this change that the BBC famously had a swingometer showing the swing from one party to another at each election. Now, Cameron, when he left, uh, must have wondered, well, what the hell am I going to do? And also must have clocked that he continued to know well senior figures in the current cabinet. Unsurprisingly, he was their boss. Rishi Sunak was a junior Tory when Cameron was Prime Minister. So not wholly unsurprisingly, he feels at ease texting these people. Matt Hancock, uh, you know, Matt Hancock, close friends with George Osborne, who is Cameron's best friend. They are all still in power. Imagine if the old pattern was in place and Labour freakishly, won an election, say 2015, Ed Balls would have been Chancellor, and Cameron would not have been in a position to text Ed Balls, and if he had done, Ed Balls would not have replied as politely as Rishi Sunak did. Uh, multiply that by 100 if John McDonnell had been Chancellor uh, after, say, the 2017 election. Cameron would have been in no position To text and text and text and do all the other things he did with his mates still in power. So it is one of many consequences of one-party rule that former prime ministers are inevitably in a position where they know and are friends with a lot of the current cabinet and civil servants and all the rest of it. And it's quite hard to rule against them behaving in ways that give them access. They they all meet up at parties, for example. You're going to ban prime ministers from partying with Matt Hancock, um, although some former prime ministers would be pleased with such a ban. But you know what I mean. This is, uh, y- you know, it's very interesting. I think that people are quite relaxed when you hear them say all the time, "Oh yeah, no, there's no way Labour can win next time." Translate that that means a uh, it may it may well be right but that means a fifth successive conservative term and I think there are lots I mean lots of people listening to this may well be conservative supporters but I think they too will agree that um, there are lots of worrying consequences of one party rule the obvious one being of course what will happen in Scotland where Scotland does not vote for Conservative governments in the way that Scotland did not vote for Brexit, but there are many others. However, there is, I think, and Scotland's a clue, one big difference between now and what happened after 79, when the Tories won four elections in a row. Then Britain was ridiculously centralised. Some people think it is still over-centralised now and in some ways it is but the pattern of devolution that haphazard erratic uh, devolving initiatives started by Labour in 1997 has really changed the dynamic of politics so for example even if England continues to vote for these conservative governments at Westminster with all the implications uh, we've reflected on today and elsewhere the big difference now is there will be a mayor of London albeit with limited powers but not trivial powers there is a mayor of Greater Manchester a mayor of Liverpool when Liverpool gets its act together in inverted commas you then have the devolved uh, there are other mayors as well and I think there will be more Bristol etc and so you know, after this so called super Thursday next month, even if it's a bad night for Starmer, there will be a Labour mayor in London, which is something of a counterbalance. A tiny counterbalance, but something of a counterbalance compared with the eighties where Margaret Thatcher famously abolished the then GLC, Greater London Council. So there really was in the eighties no counters of any significance to that mighty Westminster government. And that isn't the case now. And Scotland being the classic example, the Scottish Parliament now has quite substantial powers, evidently not enough for those who want total independence. But, you know, there are tax-raising powers and it's very interesting watching Nicola Sturgeon taking a different approach to some extent to COVID. Powers over health, powers over education, I mean, a heck of a lot. And that's why, even though Westminster retains hugely significant levers, it's not quite as potent in some respects when one party continues to rule. It is, in many ways, unhealthy, but there are those counterbalances. And so, in a way, of all the things that that new Labour era did, this one, which was least thought through, Tony Blair wasn't interested in devolution, Gordon Brown was, to some extent, from that Treasury perspective, wary of giving too much, certainly, economic power away from the centre. But through the success of Ken Livingstone, they became more confident about the mayoral system, And other changes. There is now a pattern of balance in the UK that there wasn't before. Not enough, and it would help if England occasionally voted for other parties, um, wherever you stand on the political spectrum, and it would help if the Labour Party, which is the only alternative, could occasionally get its act together. Um, But I think that is the context of the Cameron affair. But there is that counter, which is that there are more opponents around who can still wield power. Anyway, that's my thought for today, uh, or thought for the week. I'm not doing this on a daily basis. You'll be relieved to hear. And now, to your questions, if that's okay. And beginning with Joanna Lata, who has wonder, who is wondering what has happened to Nigel Farage. She notes it seems quite humiliating to be honest and I'm no fan of him. He was campaigning for Brexit for years and admittedly achieved his goal but he doesn't seem to be contributing to the dialogue on Brexit or appears to be bothered about the huge problems facing businesses. Yeah apparently he's doing that thing you can do public figures some do where you read birthday greetings for a fee. And Joanna says that's a bit humiliating for a figure who was so instrumental in Brexit. Humiliating, Joanna, but I think I might look into it. What an easy way of earning some... I might do it here. If any of you want me to pay, or willing to pay me, I will deliver you birthday messages. £10,000 a message. But it is interesting what happens to people who erupt on the public stage over an issue, but aren't actually on the formal elected parliamentary stage. They are always in a precarious place. Their prominence is dependent on charisma and media platforms. And when the issue fades from public view, as this one perversely has, because as we discuss, it's still a huge issue, someone dependent on charisma alone can fade very quickly. And Farage was never interested in the detail. He liked the broad arguments and was a very effective advocate in terms of broad arguments. Do you remember right at the beginning of all this, he did a debate with Nick Clegg when Clegg was Deputy Prime Minister on whether we should leave uh, the European Union. And it should have been a sign of what was to come. He slaughtered him in terms of arguments. But in terms of detailed consequences, uh, he really wasn't up to it um and has kind of yeah well birth if you want a birthday greeting you can have me or nigel Farage. it seems thank you for that uh, question noah Keat uh writes in uh he's he's got a lot on at the moment he's uh revising reading lord carrington's memoirs uh yeah good choice he is interested in something this is quite an important question about the UK media coverage of American politics since the inauguration of Joe Biden. He notes a lot less focus on American politics since Biden became president compared with Trump. Um, And I think it's a good point. He adds that in the midst of writing five 3,000 word essays and preparing for three online exams, Uh, He continues to listen to rock and roll politics for escapism. I hope it is escapism. I hope it doesn't kind of delve you deeper into the uh, tortured world of, not that you are being tortured, I'm sure the essays are brilliant, but five, 3,000-word essays. And then this podcast, yeah, maybe a bit of escapism. Yeah, I think it's it's a good point. And this is a message we've reflected on in questions, and I've talked about, during this podcast, that there is a tendency in politics for the media to see it as a branch of showbiz. Look at BBC One's Question Time with all those carefully choreographed rows and whipping up uh, audience anger. It's all done to get, you know, audience figures up and it doesn't tell you anything about anything other than the clichéd thoughts of the producers. And it is to some extent true That Biden, much less theatrical than Trump, is less of a draw to um, the media. And so it's made me think, I haven't a clue really what he's been. I've been fascinated by the degree to which he has gone forward with an economic stimulus of kind of uh, Keynesian radicalism. I'm not surprised because as we've discussed, uh, you know, this kind of cliche term, oh, he's a cautious centrist. What it, it, meaningless. You know, he was the one who lifted the Kinnock speech about why was I the first Kinnock in a thousand generations of Kinnocks to go to university. I mean, he's he, he's uh, he's a radical Biden, uh, but it's interesting to see what he's doing with that economic stimulus and other things. Um, but because he isn't showbiz like Trump, he's not being covered in the same way. And that is a problem we have with the media politics as showbiz uh christopher uh, patrick uh chris H- sorry i'm just reading the your email address it's chris chris hall he says i listened to your podcast or he usually saves up a month or two and listens them while burning the midnight oil writing essays for, at university another one writing uh, essays at university students are like our global audience tuning in on a regular Uh, basis. Anyway, Chris wonders whether there are parallels between the major government and Johnson in terms of the post-92 government battling it out with sleaze and the Johnson government now, we've been talking about the Cameron one and so on, and uh, whether the car parallels about long-serving Tory governments. That's why the sleaze thing is potentially dangerous for uh johnson chris it was very damaging for major although i could see this at the time actually but it wasn't commonly felt at the time but clearly in retrospect major was a model of tortured integrity Um, the sleaze happened for two reasons one prominent conservatives became sleazy Um, you know Tory backbench MPs got into trouble there were other things lurking around there was the Jonathan Aitken case of course he ended up in jail he was in the cabinet at the start of the major era Um, and Blair went for it with his usual uh, brilliance in opposition he chose the issues uh, with perfection that he knew would work for Labour and damage the Tories interestingly though Uh, Blair later said he regretted doing it because when he got accused of lying over Iraq and sleaze and cash for honours, he thought it was unfair and he then recognised he'd been unfair to Major. But that won't stop Starmer uh, trying to revive it again. The answer is whether it will be effective or not, I just don't know. Uh, Johnson seems to transcend normal rules of politics, so we'll have to wait and see but maybe it will. Uh, it's, it's quite early on. Blair really went for sleaze in the last couple of years of the uh, show his show in opposition, show being a Freudian slip, it, opposition being performance. So, yeah, there we are. Let's have a look at another question. Oh, actually, uh, there's one from uh, Scott Croswell on Biden. As Biden prepares to pull troops out of Afghanistan, it'll be 20 years since nine eleven. what do you think British politics would have been like if 9-11 never happened? How would the likes of Blair be viewed? these classic what if questions are really impossible to reflect on with any it's good fun you know so the war in iraq would that have happened possibly actually because the bush administration was looking for an excuse to do that war anyway so even if britain had not had uh blair deciding to go in on the afghanistan invasion perhaps it still would have happened, I don't know. But um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the great what ifs. I mean, the other one which is really interesting on this is, and we are in a fancy world because Blair w- was not inclined and didn't have the range or the courage to break with America over Iraq, but what if he had done so and not supported the war in Iraq? And just by looking at that, it does expose the level of his dilemma moving towards his decision to back Bush in Iraq. It, was, it wasn't a move, actually. He decided very early on he would, um, because if he had opposed, Bush would still have gone ahead. We know that for absolute certainty, because Bush offered to go ahead without Blair when he saw what trouble Blair was in. So the war would still have happened. Uh, the Murdoch Papers would have turned against Blair for being weak. And the Atlanticist wing of the Labour Party, which was quite strong then, perhaps is reviving now, um, would also have had big doubts. So it, it, it was a, a, a real dilemma for him. And as ever, he tried a third way. It wasn't a sort of crusading evangelism. It became that because he had no choice but to become that when he was so unpopular. But he tried this third way of trying to get Bush to go to the UN, to negotiate UN resolutions, and to deal with the uh, Israeli-Palestine question, which he did for about 10 minutes. But he was always going to back it. Okay, another question here, which is quite interesting, uh, from Gail Sandler. Sandler? Sandler? Uh, Gail wonders, do you think many Remainers have rethought their position on the EU uh, because of the vaccines and the EU stance on vaccines? I and many of my friends have somewhat reconsidered now. I'd be interested in your view. Uh, well, that's interesting, Gail. So you now do you now think Brexit was a good idea, having been a Remainer? Do let me know, because that is interesting. And your friends, get them in, to get in touch as well. I think on the whole, Gail, it's a, a red herring, uh, the vaccine saga, uh, for two reasons. One, Britain could still have got its own vaccines if it had been in the EU. And as we now see, many of the EU countries are adopting different strategies to getting hold of vaccines. It was up to them whether they took the sort of collective route or not. It wasn't imposed on them and Britain may well have still gone its own way if it had been in the EU. Indeed it was in the transitional year so it was still sort of in the EU um, when it made its moves on vaccines. The other thing is that the issues around Brexit remain as thorny and complex as they were if you take the kind of vaccine thing out of the picture. And in that sense, uh, I personally, uh, as convinced as ever, the whole thing is having calamitous consequences. And uh, so I haven't changed, but it's very interesting that you have and would like to hear more about whether you are now Actually, please, we're out as part of your reconsideration. Uh, Thank you, Gail. Finally, uh, from Sue Wright. Now, to make sense of Sue's uh, email, do you remember about three episodes ago, uh, one of our listeners from Italy asked a question and then reflected on how he was doing various recipes with kind of olives, homegrown, you know, we listened with envy and got a kind of vicarious thrill out of it. Anyway, he also sent a fantastic pasta recipe. This is the well-being dimension of the podcast, for those of you just tuning in. Some who are so hooked on politics kind of slightly disapprove of pleasure. Um, But Sue has written in to say, um, that she has tried the olive pasta recipe a couple of nights ago, and it was a big hit. She added some mushrooms. Take note, please. Uh, get the recipe, you know, from the earlier podcasts, but add mushrooms, a few ladon I wouldn't use those. Uh, Substituted mozzarella for parmesan. And um, then, oh, a glass of red. Yeah, absolutely essential. And then, uh, They had some leftover, which they blitzed as olive and tomato mixture on brown toast for lunch, and that was another hit. So you get a kind of civilised evening meal and then lunch the next day. Uh, Sue also writes, My politics were formed in my teenage years at school. Wilson versus Heath. Yeah, me too. Kind of. Yeah. Uh, Endless discussions, even mock elections at school. Yeah, me too. Uh, They were fascinating times, and politicians had so much more stature back then. How are we ever going to get that back? The current crop are such lightweights, and it's a bit concerning, to be honest. Uh, Yeah, I I agree, and I don't quite know why it's happened. There is an argument that that crowd who we followed were these sort of post-war giants framed by the epic... uh, consequences of the war. And if you think us lot, all of us, have been influenced by the pandemic uh, over the year, imagine what that war was and indeed the build-up to it in the 30s and the economic crises of the 30s. They were kind of moulded into big, big figures who saw politics as a vocation. Uh, So many of the current lot, back to Cameron, you know, leave politics age 12 uh, with the intention of going to make a ton of money Um, and this cabinet again whether you're Tory, Labour, Lib Dem, SMP, what else, Green, um, is objectively insubstantial compared to those, uh, you know, kind of figures of the 70s and 80s, some would say the 90s too. Now why that is, is another whole podcast in itself. Uh, I mean, I think there are reasons that you could trace, some, I'll just give one controversial one now, and that is the fashion for localism. You know, your MP has to have lived in the area, worked in the constituency, um, as the fundamental qualification for getting selected in relatively safe seats and that excludes quite a few big figures. You know in the 70s you got people like Tony Crossland in Grimsby. Now you know I doubt if Crossland was impassioned by Grimsby when he was 12 or was brought up in Grimsby or worked in Grimsby, but he was a good local MP and an important contributor to national politics that's gone, but there are many other factors too and you know talk about the cabinet, the shadow cabinet is insubstantial. For a book I'm writing at the moment I had to do something about the 1992 election the other day and Kinnock's shadow cabinet they lost of course and incidentally lost in terms of votes by a very big margin but it's back to that theme, you know Labour lose elections, Tories win them. And Kinnock's shadow cabinet, compared with the current lot, most of whom I bet we all can't name in its entirety, that shadow cabinet. Um, The Kinnock one in 92, John Smith, shadow chancellor. uh, Gordon Brown was in there. uh, Tony Blair was uh, in there. uh, Brian Gould, do you remember Brian Gould? Really interesting thinker of a sort of Tony Crossland mould. Uh, He was a a very key figure and worked closely with Kinnock. The wily, mischievous Gerald Kaufman was at his peak at that point. Robin Cook was there, I think, as uh, shadow health secretary. It was a a team that could have effortlessly moved into the demands of government. And uh, quite a lot of them were well known. Not hugely, because most people don't follow politics, but there was enough flair and uh, a thoughtful inventiveness in terms of projection uh, in that um, shadow cabinet, and that cannot be said with the in relation to the current one. And as for the current cabinet, well, if you think that Pretty Patel is Home Secretary, Dominic Raab, Foreign Secretary, I mean these, uh, you know, these aren't uh, big figures. And incidentally the the jury is out with in terms of. Uh, Dishi Rishi as well uh, you know he's had a a start to die for in some respects but questions whirling around I think his broader strategy anyway thank you all so much for those questions that's just about it uh, I hope you've spent the time fruitfully revising uh, kind of burning the midnight oil having a glass of whiskey running whatever And I'll be back again next week. Please send those questions in. I'll put the email address on the uh, podcast blurb. And oh yeah, don't forget that historic final show live streaming from a room in my house on May the 12th. I think that will be the 12th or 13th. I'm going to have to check. Uh, Part of the history of the lockdown being played out. Thanks for listening. Have a good week. See you next time. Bye.